guys for being here. Okay, let's talk about snapshots of Jesus from the Gospel of Mark. And that's what we're going to do. Now, you got to, to meet again Janet Seifert. Janet runs the Hall of Reason at the library, and, and Janet is a, a closet UFOologist uh, who doesn't want people to know. And Janet is someone who emails me periodically about different questions. A number of you do. I got an email from Larry about uh, uh, a histemi uh, noun in uh, Hebrews. And I, a number of you email me questions. <clears throat> and here's, here's what Janet's been pestering me on. And she has emailed me more times than I can count. She texts me. She asks me face to face. She says, why in the Gospels does it refer to Jesus as the Son of Man? What is the significance of that? It just doesn't make sense. And I continually put her off. I'll deal with that someday. I'll deal with that someday. I'll deal with that someday. Janet, I'm going to deal with that today. And it's a good day to do it because... Hold on, now my computer's being fussy. Because in the Gospel of Mark, which is the shortest gospel, it's just 16 little chapters. In the Gospel of Mark, 14 times either Mark or Jesus himself, who's quoted in the Gospel, refer to himself as the Son of Man. Now that's not something we normally use to talk about someone. Son of man. And it's over and over and over and over again. So that should make you ask the question, what gives? Well, what I'd like to do is answer that this morning. Let's look through the keyhole and let's see what's there. We're going to do it with three different angles. First, we're going to look at what the meaning is of that expression. And then after we look at the meaning, we're going to ask, uh, take a look at some of the passages. We don't have time to look at all 14. And then after that, we're going to talk about the significance of it. So if you'll bear with me, we'll get through this, and you will be able to stun friends and enemies alike with your ability to dialogue and discourse on the Son of Man. And what it means for Jesus to be called the Son of Man. So let's start out. What does that phrase even mean? Well, we live in a different culture today than existed then. But back then it was very common to identify someone not by their um, driver's license, not by their passport, not by their social security card or the last four digits of their social security number. But you would identify people by who their parents were, specifically their dad. So Simon Peter is also called Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar was the Aramaic word for son. So he was Simon, son of Jonah. And it was very typical for that to be done. So the idea of someone being called a son of man, that son of part is very ex uh, common expression, way of identifying. 
But let's take it an extra step. And I want to suggest to you, there seem to be two main sources to the expression. The first is just common language, and the second is the Old Testament. What did you think of that PowerPoint slide? That's called, my mom was playing bridge yesterday, so she wasn't able to work in the greenhouse with me, so instead I played on PowerPoint. We didn't do that again, watch this. See, watch, the water came out from the top. See, it comes out from the top. And then look, whoa, whoops, don't fill up so fast. It comes out, fills up. Okay. There are two, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he didn't know his Bible, but man, he can do PowerPoint. Um, there are two main sources to the expression. We draw it from the tap of just common language, the way people talked then, but we also look at the Old Testament because the people of Jesus' day were rightly people of the Word. The Old Testament was their Bible, and they did it. So if we look first at the common language, son of man was a common phrase in the days of Jesus. And it was a way of referring to oneself, especially if, if you're doing it in a way of, of humility. It's almost the opposite now. If, if I refer to myself as, instead of saying, um, hey, uh, I'm, I'm really honored to get to speak to you today about the Lord. If instead I come up and say, Mark Lanier is really honored to speak to you about the Lord. And I start referring to myself by my name, like I'm not me. It comes off a little bit goofy and comes off, can come off a little bit goofy. Some people pull it off. It can also come off a little bit haughty. Some people pull it off, but not back then. Back then, to say son of man was just a common way to express, say, me, I, or a common way to refer to men in general. You say, well, why just men? Because it's son of man, not daughter of man. So uh, uh, <laughs> that's the reason why. So it was used for men. And, and, and let me give you two good examples of this. And these are from uh, commentaries on Genesis. Genesis Rabbah and Numbers Rabbah. Now, Rabbi Jacob makes a ruling and Rabbi Haggai hears about the ruling of Rabbi Jacob and he says Rabbi Jacob needs to come here and be whipped Rabbi Jacob replies sends a message should the son of man be whipped for proclaiming scripture and Rabbi Haggai replies yes because you didn't give the right ruling so son of man clearly there is referencing Rabbi Jacob. When Rabbi Jacob says, should the Son of Man be scourged for proclaiming Scripture? The reply is, yes, because you didn't give the right ruling. Now, somewhere on the internet, or out there, someone watching this is saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This Midrash probably dates from like the earliest, the 200s AD. <clears throat> True. But scholars seem to think that Aramaic in that region of the world stayed pretty constant during this time period and the expressions then would have been equally around at the time of Jesus. 
So that's a good example of how someone could say son of man just referring to themselves. Let me give you one where they're talking about just common people. This is Genesis rabbi also, but here there's a, a, a rabbi in hiding in a cave. And, and the rabbi is trying to figure out when it's safe to come out. And the rabbi is talking about it and he says, look, a bird is not caught without the will of heaven. How much less the soul of a son of man. And what he's talking about is just a human being here. In other words, God doesn't let a bird get caught without God saying it's okay for the bird to get caught. So, hey, it's okay. I don't need to worry. People don't need to worry. God's in control. Now, I'm not holding this up for good theology. Okay? Understand that. Lock your doors at night. Have security around you. <laughs> Because God expects us to be responsible with ourselves and not live recklessly because, hey, God's going to take care of it. So I'm not speaking for the theology. I just want us to understand the son of man expression was one that could be just used for an ordinary person, an ordinary fellow. So that's the common language. Jesus is speaking at a time and Mark is writing at a time where people commonly used the phrase son of man to either mean themselves or to mean people in general. Got it? Now, let's talk about the Old Testament meaning. That phrase son of man is found in the Old Testament 107 times. All but once, it's in Hebrew. So it's Ben-Adam, son of man. One time in the book of Daniel, it's in Aramaic, which is the, the language that was spoken more commonly at the time of Jesus. And so there, it's not Ben-Adam. It's uh, depending upon which form it is, but, but it's going to be in Aramaic, bar Anshah, or they got rid of the Aleph at one point, and then it's just Ansh, Anash, Anash, I should say, and then it's just Naash. So it takes those different forms. You don't care. The point is, 107 times in the Old Testament it's used, but it's used in two different contexts that I really want to underscore with you. One context First of all, out of 197 times, the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, it's used 93 times in that book alone. 93 times. If this worked, I would show you Ezekiel 2.1, but it doesn't work. So I'm not going to show it to you. But I'm going to read it to you so that you've got it. Ezekiel 2.1 gives you, or 2. Chapter 2, verse 1 gives you an example. And he says to me, this is God calling Ezekiel, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. And Ezekiel is called the son of man over and over and over 93 times. Now there are also passages where it's clear that it just refers to people. 
So you can look, for example, at Psalm 8, 4, which I can't show you, but I can read to you. And a lot of you will know this anyway. This is the psalm that begins, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heavens, here it is, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you put in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? And so it's, it's being used there in the sense of what is, you know, you've done all of this, God. Why do you care for me? And so it says man or son of man. What is it about it? Uh, similarly in Psalm 80, another passage where it's used, Psalm 80 verse 17. It says, it's, it's when the psalmist is asking God to, come on, pay attention, help me out here. He says, let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. You know, God, put your hand down here on me. So we find the Old Testament usage to be one which is consistent with the common usage at the time of Jesus to refer to a person. Maybe specifically some of the time as a prophet with Ezekiel, but certainly a person. But on top of that, there's one verse that is particularly profound in the Old Testament, talking about the Son of Man. And this is found in Daniel 7.13. And I actually have it in the PowerPoint later, but at this point I was going to show it on the screen. So instead, let me read it to you, and we'll have it that way. Daniel 7.13, now this is a vision that the prophet Daniel has. And he says, and I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And so when Daniel gives this prophecy, there is this idea of Son of Man not simply being a person, but there would be a special son of man who was going to become one who was like, the Hebrew kaf at the beginning of the word, like a son of man who is going to be what we would now say the Messiah. So you have that prophetic word. So in just the meaning of the phrase son of man. You can see it as me or a man. But you can also see it as the apocalyptic one. And that just the one who is coming. The end of days. The Messiah. So if you've got that background of the meaning of son of man. 
let's now look at some passages that use Son of Man. These passages, people put into different buckets. Some put them into three, some put them into four, some put them into two. And the reason why is it's not real clear and the water just sloshes between the buckets. But I'll put the three up there. One set of scriptures is where Jesus is, or Mark are just talking about the present activity. It's just day-to-day stuff. Here's the narrative, here's the storyline, and you've got it there. But almost all of the passages seem to tie in some way or another into the sufferings of Jesus. And then you've got some other passages at the end of Mark especially that talk about his future vindication. Got it? Let's look and fill these buckets up. So the present activity is the first time this phrase makes itself known in the book of Mark. And it happens twice at two different events in the second chapter of Mark. And so this word begins with, uh, uh, or this phrase begins with what could be just an everyday event. Now, I never take big passages and put them up on a PowerPoint. But for some reason this morning I did. Thank you, Lord, because you need the whole thing. Mark 2. When Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. Now you say, Capernaum, I didn't think Jesus lived there. What do you mean at home? Well, there's a good chance he was living with Peter. And uh, uh, Peter lived in Capernaum. Peter is the one who, who, in essence, gave this gospel to Mark to record. And so it makes sense for Peter to say he's at home at Capernaum. That was his home at the time. He was at Peter's home. Many were gathered together. So there was no more room. Not even at the door. And Jesus was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic. A fellow who's paralyzed. Carried by four men. And when they couldn't get near him because of the crowd. They just took the thatch off the roof. And they lowered him down. They let down the bed on which the paralyzed fellow lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there and they're questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like this? Whoops. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins? but God alone. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves, said to him, why are you questioning these things in yourself? What's easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or rise, take up your bed and walk. 
But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. The paralyzed fellow rose, picked up his bed, and went out before them all. They were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never seen this before. Now if we focus on that passage, verses 10 and 11, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now, this would not have shocked the people. For Jesus to say Son of Man in that way is just like saying me. If, that you know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, that shocks them that he claims to have the authority to forgive sins because that's the part they thought was blasphemous. No man has that authority, save one. So Jesus could say it in a way that made, that made them just think, you know, he's claiming something that's just not right. But he, he wasn't... It didn't shine a spotlight on him that he said son of man there that would have alerted them to that one passage in Daniel 7. So verse 28 is another similar story with another healing and, and you've got those in chapter 2. But then as Mark's gospel proceeds, you begin to see this expression over and over used for Jesus in his suffering. And so we see it in chapter 8, verse 31. We see it in chapter 9, in verse 9, in verse 12, in verse 31. We see it in chapter 10, 33 and 45. Chapter 14, 21 and 41. And this is Jesus talking about the Son of Man in a suffering context. Okay? Look at it here. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, the Son of Man here, ton huion tu anthropu, this is the Son of Man in Greek, which would have been the, the bar uh, ansha in, in Aramaic. This is the Son of Man, language. But now Jesus is saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected. Now there's a word here. If you're reading in the Greek, look at this. See this word D-E-I? It looks, well, Delta Epsilon Iota. D-E-I is the English equivalent of it. That's talking in the Greek about something that's necessary. Something that's required. It's not optional. It, it, it's what ought to be. It's, it's necessary, okay? If you look, the word must in English is translated after that phrase son of man. But in the Greek, it's actually before the phrase son of man. See, it's that blue word. In the Greek, it's before. Because there's an emphasis here that... This is a, a requirement that the Son of Man would suffer many things, suffer much. 
That's the pola pathos is suffer. So he's going to suffer much. But that's necessary. Jesus isn't just saying, hey, bad situation, bad stuff's coming. It's a hard rains are going to fall. Jesus instead is saying, this is necessary. This is essential. This is required that the Son of Man do this. And if you're getting this, here's a spoiler alert toward the end. In Thessalonica, when Paul's talking to the Thessalonians, it says, Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary. Same word. For the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. This was necessary. It had to be done. This isn't an option. Remember the compelling problem God presents through scripture. The compelling problem we have is that God is a just judge. God is a just judge. And he's not going to change. So how does a just judge declare Mark Lanier or any of you not guilty? Because I'm guilty. We're all guilty. And that's a real problem. Because the if God is a just judge, how does a just judge say not guilty to someone who's guilty? And the answer that God provides is through the suffering of Christ. That someone else has already paid the penalty for my guilt. And in him... I have his, I, if I'm in him, I not only have that forgiveness, or I not only have the, the guilt paid for, but I have the forgiveness of the resurrection. So this is, this is necessary. Paul's been telling this to everybody on the mission field. Mark is not recording a story. And Mark's gospel is being written after Paul's missionary efforts. Mark's not telling something any different than what Paul has been telling people on the field. This is necessary for the Christ to suffer. The Son of Man must suffer many things. Jesus said it before Paul did. Now to the people listening to this, go back to the way they could understand this language. Jesus could be talking about himself, especially since it, that, that personal, first person is particularly accurate for descriptions of someone who's suffering or humiliated. He could be talking about himself, but in truth, we know he's talking about the unique role he's taking as our Savior. That's why he must suffer. That's why it was necessary. That's why it was required. That's how he is our savior. He saves us from the just judge. Now, if you were here a month ago when we started this study, I told you the gospel of Mark is 16 chapters, but that you could really kind of segregate out. Even though it's 16 chapters that builds to the crucifixion and resurrection, you could segregate out the first 13 verses. Because the first 13 verses are like a reading guide. 
and they, they give you the view from heaven. This is like God's view. This tells you what's really going on in the story, and then you get into the story from there. But that reader's guide gives heaven's view of things. And so you start out understanding how God sees all of this, and, and that's explained. Heaven views explained in the beginning. And then you get into the material, and in the material you find that people really don't understand what's going on. They're bewildered by all of this. They're bewildered by his teaching. They're bewildered by his authority. They're bewildered by his death. They're bewildered by his suffering. I mean, Peter says, oh, heavens don't suffer. It's not necessary. And Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. Because it is necessary. Jesus suffers because he has to. It's the only way to get the just judge to declare me not guilty. It's for someone to suffer on my behalf and to take my guilt away. Someone that I can affiliate with and be a part of so that that atonement, that, that payment is credited to my account. So you see over and over and over in these passages sufferings. Let me give you one more. Look at the Mark 9 31 passage. Jesus was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days he'll rise. Now they don't understand what he's saying. And they're afraid to even ask him. They don't want to say, uh, man, I don't get that. They don't understand it. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They'll kill him. What, what, does he mean eyes? Is he talking about people? Does he mean us? Doesn't say sons of men. Maybe it's just him. They don't have a clue. God gives us the answers in the reader's guide, the first 13 verses. But you're marching through the gospel. You don't get the answers. Or, I mean, you see the bewilderment on their face. It's just we know the end of the story. But the end of the story is one that takes into account both spigots that are filling the Son of Man bowl. Jesus is a human being. He's also God. But we sometimes know so much that he's God and we call on his name as, as the Savior and Redeemer that we forget what it means that he was a human being. God became a human. And only as a human is he able to suffer the way a human does. Only as a human is he able to suffer what I should suffer. Only as a human is he able to die when I should die. Only as a human does he get that resurrection which is shared by me as well. So if we've got that reader's guide and we know this is heaven's view, we're able to look at passages like this and we see what's really going on even though they didn't understand. We understand why Jesus was suffering and that it was necessary for him to suffer. I want to give you one more out of this bucket because we're doing okay time-wise. Mark 14. Jesus came the third time and said to them, and this is when Jesus has been off praying, 
And he's told Peter and James and John, I think, were the three to stay awake while he prayed and pray with him. And, he, and they just kept dozing off. Um, he says to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Okay, that's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And Judas comes. Now, at some point, we need to really be sure that we get that reader's guide view of this. That we understand both sides of the spigot. That we understand Jesus could be saying, I am going now to, to be betrayed, but that he's also talking about the apocalyptic one. He's talking about the one that Daniel prophesied would be the savior of the world. And this is how he's the savior of the world. Look, the, 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 David Capes and I were talking about this the, the other day. Do you, do, you, do you and I begin to understand the difficulty that the followers of Jesus had? When Jesus is dead and then he's resurrected, for three years they followed him. And Jesus was immensely um, humble. Jesus was immensely service-minded. Jesus was the one who was washing the feet of others. Jesus is the one who came to serve others. Jesus is the one who, who will visit with anybody and doesn't care about status. Jesus is the one that would dine with sinners. Jesus is the one who's arrested. Jesus is the one who's ridiculed, who's spit upon, who's beaten. Jesus, the meek one. And then all of a sudden, this Jesus that they've known for three years is revealed to be the resurrected, powerful God who's coming in glory and might to judge the dead and the undead with all of the power of God. And they're sitting there saying, I didn't get that. Wish I'd have known that three years ago. It would have been a little different. I, I mean, haven't you ever been in that position where you got these questions you want to ask God when you get up there? They're saying, we could have been asking this guy, man. We missed it. But we know that because we're reading the story and we've got that reader's guide with heaven's view of how things really are. They're bewildered. But let's go back to the buckets. So Mark starts out, the bewilderment gospel starts out with Jesus just using that phrase in a way that could commonly be used by anybody. And then Jesus starts using that phrase to indicate his sufferings. And it could just be the sufferings of a human being, but it begins to take more clarity that there's something unique about the sufferings of Jesus. And if you're hearing it and you're reading these passages, you're starting to see that this may be something a little bit different. And then you get to the future vindication passages. And you've got a little slosh over from chapter 8, but 13 and 14 really give it to you. And here's where Jesus says, Mark 14, 
the high priest. Jesus has been arrested. He's been hauled in front of the high priest. He's getting grilled and cross-examined. They're trying to figure out how to get rid of their problem. And the high priest says to him, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the blessed? And finally, Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is huge. Jesus says, I am. Let's segregate these phrases out in the Greek. Ego me. I am. Ego me is a phrase that's used in the Greek to translate the name of God. When Moses is at the burning bush. Ego me, I am. The name of God should not even be pronounced by a good Jew in that time. It's blasphemy just to say his name. Jesus not only says his name. He says, and you will see the Son of Man. Look at the green highlight. Seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now you go back to our two spigots. Jesus is not just saying you're going to see me. But he has now clearly said I'm the Daniel 7 son of man. I want to put that back up and instead of the Greek I'm going to put Daniel 7 up here for you. Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven. You'll see coming with the clouds of heaven Jesus said. With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. You'll see the son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Whoa! Jesus has just, you know, some people say, I never see that Jesus makes a claim that he's divine. It doesn't get any more divine than that. Yeah, but Jesus always says he's a human. He was. Paul said it in Philippians 2. That though he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God something to be held on to. But he emptied himself and took the form of a human. And being made in the likeness of men, he humbled himself to men. To the point of death, even death on a cross. But, Paul says, therefore God highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue proclaim Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what Jesus is saying. So let's keep going. At this, the high priest tears his garments and says, what further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What's your decision? And they all said, he deserves to die. He's blasphemed. He's claimed to be the one who comes as Savior of the world. He claims to be the great I Am. He claims to be God. 
This is that future vindication bucket. These son of man passages are rich fodder because they inform us not only what Jesus was in an apocalyptic sense, but also what he was as a human. Jesus as God could not do what Jesus did if he wasn't also human. The just judge cannot proclaim humans righteous when they're not unless there's another human that's made them righteous. That's the way it is. It was necessary. So let's look then at the significance as we bring this to a close. Remember, it's got to be a me or a man, and yet Jesus is also the apocalyptic one who's coming. So here are a couple of passages to talk about the significance. Mark 10, 43 through 45. Jesus is saying, this is not the way you're to be. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus can only do that as the Son of Man. Now, even as the Son of Man, he can't do it if the Son of Man he is is any ordinary human like we are. Because he's got his own sins that take him down. So he's got to be the divine one as well. He's got to have both sides of that spigot informing who he is as the Son of Man. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter 3.18. Christ also suffered once for our sin or for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ suffers. The Son of Man suffers. But he's done that for us. To bring us to God. That's the only way we come before God. Is by the death of Christ. The atoning death of Christ. The death of Christ that we get to share in. Simply by faith. By asking and trusting I mean, you'd think this was something that cost every dime in your bank account and more. You'd have to mortgage the house and, and, and your children. You'd, you'd need to knock over a bank. No. You'd need to live your own perfect life. No. You'd need to go to church every time the doors are open. Well, I'd love you to have you here, but I don't do that myself. No. This is God through human God Jesus has paid the price for our sins. And when we trust in him, when we say, God, I want that. I want to be in Christ. It's ours. Paul said it this way in Romans 5. If many died through one man's trespass, and Paul's talking about original sin with Adam. You know, when Adam and Eve sinned and died, the illustration uh, that, that I've found useful in my brain, um, does anybody have, we don't even carry coins anymore, do we? Nobody's got like two coins, 
Anybody got two coins? People do. I could, okay, I, I, that'd be good because instead I'd have to drop my iPhone because it's got Apple iPay, but I might crack the screen. You got just two coins? Okay, Starbucks on me? Because I'm sure with this nickel and dime we can get a lot. Okay, here's a nickel and dime. Dime's got, uh, is that Kennedy on the front? No, who's on the front of a dime? Somebody, it's Jefferson on the nickel. It's FDR, that's who it is. FDR and Jefferson. Here are two people. This is Adam and Eve, and they are in fellowship with God. They've got his moral purity. He's made them to be in a relationship. But sin separates them from God. They, the biblical image, fell. Now, our problem is, we're born to those coins down there. I, you don't have to teach a kid how to sin. They come out of the womb knowing that. Um, I, I think I lost his dime. <laughs> I got you 15 cents right up here. You, 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 you don't have to teach a kid how to sin. We know that. You got to teach them how not to. We're born. So that's what Paul's saying here. He says, if many died, all of us are spiritually dead through one man's sin, much more the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Look what Paul says. And the free gift by the grace of that one man. Now, through, he doesn't use anthropos there, but within the context, he's pulled it down from before. So we, we've got the one man. It's the, the fact of who Jesus was that allows this grace to be there. Paul says it this way, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life. Through the one man, Jesus Christ. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is God made man. That's the incarnation. That's the beauty of it. That's how the just God allows, declares, justly declares that we sinners are now righteous because we have the righteousness of Christ the man Christ who was also God so that's your snapshots of Jesus here are your three points to take home point number one for me I want to see Jesus I want to understand him better I'm excited to teach this series next week. Pastor Brent said, teach this series. I'm excited. I was teaching something else. I'm excited to be teaching this series because I'm spending time in the, right now, Gospel of Mark, seeing Jesus better. And I want to see Jesus. I want to see Jesus because I want to praise Jesus. I want to say, thank you, Lord. 
I want to say, I want, uh, mom, do you remember, oh, by the way, a number of you have expressed condolences about mom's passing. She is not passed, she's right over there. Um, there was another Mark whose mother passed away, and we need to be praying for Mark Winder um, uh, because he lost his mother. And many of you, somehow it got confused and people thought it was my mom. Pastor Brent called me last night and said, are you doing okay? I said, I'm doing great, how about you? He says, you are? I said, oh, you heard the rumor about mom dying. He said, yeah. I said, no, she's just been killing it in bridge, but she's not dead. <laughs> but mom, you remember the song we used to sing growing up? I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a savior condemned unclean. How wonderful, how marvelous, and my song shall ever be. How wonderful, how marvelous is my Savior's love for me. That's, I want to praise Jesus. I, I want to know him better. I want to see him better so I can praise him better. And last, I want to follow him better. Because here's the deal. The suffering Jesus says, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For anyone who loses his life for my sake will gain it. Jesus calls us to follow him, to be the servant of people. He doesn't call us to be hashtag CEO. He calls us to be hashtag servant of all. Now, you may be a CEO, and if you are, I hope you understand that your responsibility as hashtag CEO is to be hashtag servant of all. But that's what we're called to be. So that's where I am on this. I thank you for being here this morning. Let me bless you in the name of Jesus, and uh, I look forward to seeing you next week, God willing. Thank you all for being here. It's very encouraging to me to teach to, to people who are here live. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray your blessings on everybody that's in here and everybody that watches this via the internet, that they will see Jesus better, that we will better understand the great lengths to which you went to justly and fully redeem us eternally, that we are part of your eternal kingdom brings praise to our lips and humility to our hearts. Stir up love and service within us, Father, in the name of Jesus, because of who he is, because of what he did. Amen. See you guys next Sunday.